Welcome to episode two of the Law Club podcast, presented by the Charles Houston Bar Association. Today, we are proud to be playing part one of a conversation with legendary civil rights attorney and activist Walter Riley, moderated by CHBA president Terrence Evans. We hope you enjoy this conversation about Mr. Riley's life, his work, and his hopes for the future. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Terrence Evans. I am a partner at Wayne Morris, where I co-chair our banking and financial services practice and also our diversity and inclusion program. I also am proud to be the new president of the Charles Houston Bar Association, which is the oldest black bar association in California. And I am the co-chair and co-founder of the CLA Racial Justice Committee. Uh, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to have a conversation with longtime civil rights lawyer, Walter Riley. Uh, Walter has a long history of fighting for justice and civil rights, uh, dating back to his childhood. He was uh, born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, he joined the civil rights movement uh, very early in his life. Uh, he organized protests, picket lines. He sat in on lunch counters to desegregate them. He helped desegregate movie theaters. He had conversations with uh, iconic civil rights leaders like Malcolm X, Floyd McKissick. Uh, he moved to the Bay Area in 1965, and he joined the 1968 student strike for ethnic studies at San Francisco State University. Eventually, he settled in Oakland, and he worked to become a very successful civil rights attorney and activist. And he has continued uh, in the fight and in the struggle for justice. For more than 60 years of his life, he has devoted himself to the cause of fighting for racial justice, civil rights, and equality for all. And he is still fighting today. Um, Walter, thank you so much for being here and for being part of this discussion and all that you have done over the course of your life in the fight for justice. I, I would like to I would like to share um, some photographs from your um, your history in fighting for civil rights. But before I do that, are there any preliminary words that you would like to share with the audience? Oh, well, thank you for having me here. And um, I really appreciate um, Alameda County Bar Association and the work that you do with Charles Houston in trying to develop racial justice. Absolutely necessary at this time. We'll talk more about it, but I appreciate all the work that's being done and the people here. And I'm particularly inspired right now at the age of 77 that there is a chance for a lot more to uh, progress to be made. Uh, absolutely. I am going to share my screen with everyone, and we're going to look at some uh, photographs that tell part of the story of your fight for civil rights and justice. Uh, Walter, are you able to see my screen right now? Yes, I am. Um, this is a uh, uh, photograph, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the photos uh, that shows you here uh, with the great... Uh, attorney Floyd McKissick and Malcolm X. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in this photograph? 
Well, this uh, is a photograph of uh, a press uh, conference with Floyd McKissick and um, Malcolm X. And um, that time, Malcolm was still part of the uh, Nation of Islam. And um, I was MC at a uh, program for him, uh, speaking uh, with Floyd McKissick. There was a um, difficult time for getting a place to speak because most of the places that we had put together uh, canceled once they started getting pushback from various folks in the white community. But I was chair at that time of the local organization that was statewide work, and I was a field secretary for CORE at that time. But this was a meeting of CORE and NAA folks. A long history, long a lot of story in that that particular time when when we spoke. So. And just so, so that folks uh, understand, um, we have of course Malcolm X on the right, and we have Attorney Floyd McKissick in the center, and that's you on the far left. That's me on the far left. Yes, of the photograph. And Floyd McKissick. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Floyd McKissick? Well, Floyd McKissick was um, a um, nationally known attorney at the time. He was uh, um, a pioneer in the movement in the South. He later became the chair of the Congress of Racial Equality and finally became a federal judge. But he pioneered a lot of the work in the area around you know, fighting to develop a movement to end the segregated system that existed. We fought for jobs. A primary approach was fighting for jobs. One of the things that I remember clearly about Floyd McKissick is that uh, he said that, uh, and I followed that work that famously that we are not nonviolent philosophically. We are nonviolent tactically because we don't have the ability to fight a violent struggle with the racist uh, system that exists. Uh, we use this tactic. Um, and that was part of the political approach <clears throat> of a lot of folks, particularly a lot of young people in the movement at that time. It's important to remember that. And can you speak to some of the economic challenges that many folks were dealing with uh, during that time? Because you mentioned that uh, you all were fighting for jobs. Um, what was it that made it, you know, the focus of, of what you were, were fighting for because I think a lot of folks, when they're thinking about the civil rights movement in the 60s, uh, you know, they're thinking about desegregation of public uh, places. But I don't think people think enough about the economic challenges that African-Americans and other people of color had at that time. Yeah, well, the fight for jobs was a major aspect of the civil rights movement. Um, and that included tactics for picketing stores that didn't hire black people. Um, challenging the uh, hiring policies at major uh, industries. We fought for jobs and we fought for equality in the jobs and we supported the movement. Durham, North Carolina was a center for the tobacco uh, industry um, for manufacturing cigarettes. And so there were black people working in the factories and that made it, that was a major economic backbone for Durham, North Carolina at that time. Tremendous economic development was developing and the fight with black folk involved. 
but we fought for uh, the uh, and supported the uh, unionized work that was being done among the factory workers in the uh, 50s and early 60s the uh, many of the unions in the south were uh, segregated so there were black unions and there was a time when unions started to merge and when they merged black folk were at the bottom of the uh, of the uh, seniority list and that was a long struggle particularly in a place like North Carolina where we had industrial workers in the tobacco industry who had fought in the wars particularly in young folk coming back from Korea uh, playing a role in the union movement. So we were connected to that. I was a liaison with the, uh, with the labor movement as a high school student and organizer. And later uh, in my early years before I, after I graduated was a civil rights, or, a, a field secretary for core throughout the uh, Southeast. And our program was, to ensure that black folk got jobs. Now, a lot of places didn't have the opportunities that we had in Durham with factory work, but factory work was the only place that was open. We weren't able to get uh, jobs in the uh, um, uh, other aspects of the of the industry in the, uh, it's the Center for Medical, um, um, providing medical uh, uh, source, resources for, for folks. Uh, still is at this point. Black folk were not getting those jobs in that, in that period in, in the industry. Um, black folks were not getting jobs in the retail industry. We were able to use our economic uh, power, and we've always had economic power, buying things, buying goods, particularly buying uh, uh, retail stores. And uh, we, we started using that. We organized around that all over the Southeast to ensure that we got jobs in those retail industries. We wanted to get jobs in the cotton mills. We wanted to get jobs in the uh, uh, financial institutions. By the way, a, a Durham uh, had the at that time the largest black-owned business in the world, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, and the Mechanics and Farmers Bank uh, was Durham organized at that time, independent of any other banking system, was black-owned, and there was North Carolina Mutual uh, 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 um, Credit Union, and um, those had been organized since the turn of the century. So we had some of those resources in Durham. But it didn't exist in most other places, and we were able to play a major role in moving people to fight around these issues. Durham is one of the places there was a Black Wall Street, um, like in some other places, but you know, those places were few and far between in this country. Uh, I came from a tobacco family. We had, until 1950 and in the early 50s, we were sharecroppers or tenant farmers. And I was born in a place that was built by uh, enslaved people, dirt floor, and most of my family were in those places in the beginning. Um, I was the second person in my family to graduate high school. And my brother, two years older than I, uh, ninth of 11 children. And there were hardships that we faced. And when we understood that, most of us who got involved in the movement carried that energy and insights into the work that we were engaged in. Can you talk a little bit about sharecropping? You mentioned that your uh, family, you, you know, your father was a farmer and uh, were sharecroppers. My grandfather was a sharecropper in Tennessee. And I think some folks don't really understand what that concept is like following slavery. You had a lot of black folks who ended up as sharecroppers. What exactly did that mean when you were a sharecropper? Whose land were... Uh, your father and other folks working on it. 
the land that that, that the uh, farmers worked, black farmers worked, was the land that had been owned by the uh, antebellum landowners, slave owners. Um, I mean, I grew up in an area that that I could walk to see my grandmother's, my great my great grandmother's uh, house where she was born as a slave, and where she lived and died when she was enslaved. And um, that was the nature of the community that we lived in. So we worked on the land that the enslaved folks had worked, and we raised the cash crops in North Carolina around Durham, tobacco, that the enslaved folks had worked to make folks rich, to build the backbone of the economic empire that grew out of the tobacco industry. Uh, they had to work for, uh, pay for their rent. That's why it was called in sharecropping by giving the owner of the land the major portion of uh, the profit that was made. So the owner would sometimes give a stake, and sometimes they didn't give a stake in buying the seeds or the plants or the fertilizer that kept things going. Sometimes they charged more than it was necessary, uh, more than the market value of those products when they bought them. So sometimes many farmers would try and buy it themselves, but most people didn't have the resources, didn't have the uh, financial support to ensure that. So they generally ended up poor and remain poor because that was the nature of a system that got 75% of the profit made from the hard work of a whole family for an entire year. And families would be forced to move on if the farmer thought that they were going to get something, a better deal from from another group, from the next farmer. And that was true for white farmers too. There were white farmers who were doing the same thing, having to work the land for the, for the, for the owner of the land who were the descendants of the uh, sl- slaveholders. And wasn't it also uh, an issue? It almost sounds like this uh, this sharecropping is kind of like a, a different form of slavery, economic slavery, uh, for a lot of the families who found themselves, uh, you know, working land basically owned by by white men. Would that be a fair characterization? It was like a, a different yes. way of of enslaving uh, black folks, um, and. Also during this time, and I remember stories uh, from uh, my grandparents and my parents telling me, uh, it was difficult for black folks to acquire land. Um, Many times white people wouldn't sell land to black people. uh, And there were many times black folks were cheated out of land. They they would, you know, find ways to save their money, buy it, uh, and find themselves cheated out of the land that they had worked so hard for. Are you familiar with any of those stories where it was hard for black folks oh. to acquire property? I know those, I know those stories. Yes. Black folk could not buy land. Um, um, my father was a good farmer. He was able to, 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 he was, he was recognized in the community as someone who knew what planning was about and, 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 uh, husbanding the land. So he was able to, uh, amass enough money to to buy a place. But prior to that, we had lived on a place where he was doing fairly well. Uh, and uh, white folks, you know, poison all our animals. Wow. Um, uh, and so we had to move to where I actually grew up in, in Bracktown, Durham, North Carolina. Um, eventually we got there and um, he continued to farm. <laughs> my mama said, it's enough for my young kids. The older kids had farmed, worked, plowed uh, at uh, adolescence, plowing behind a mule, and mom didn't want us younger kids. I'm the ninth child, like I say, doing all that. She says, 
to my dad, you got to do something more. So he continued to farm, but but got a job working in construction. Started off as a menial labor worker and ended up um, being a machine operator. But um, the idea that 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 one could buy land was 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 a problem then, and it still is a problem. People in Southwest are being uh, lands being stolen from folks for all kinds of reasons. Large families are being being uh, 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 separated from the land that their parents had fought and, and, and spent their life trying to build. It has become part of the uh, criminal justice system, too, because bail agencies across the country are taking land from folks. Uh, you go do some research about what's happening in some of the you know, old southern Confederate states, bail companies as part of the banking system, uh, and the court system is taking land from black folks who have worked a lifetime and generations to, to acquire land. I know that happened in my community. Um, people don't have resources to pay bail. The bail system itself is so unfair that you have to find a, a financier to get you out. Uh, if, whatever it happens to be, you get caught and arrested, sometimes just for traffic issues, uh, my, minimal issues. Uh, we, we remember that from, from, from the... Uh, demonstrations that occurred in various parts of the country last year and in, in the recent years. Communities are impoverished because of the criminal justice system that 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 uh, requires people to pay bail, to pay fines that they shouldn't be paying otherwise, or to give some more justice and equ equity in that. So land is still a major issue in, in this country where black folk and working people uh, are being denied the ability to maintain and hold on to their, their land, which is a major aspect of gaining uh, wealth in this society. And I see a lot of parallels between uh, your life experience and uh, what I've read and what I've heard from, uh, from family members, um, many of the same experiences as it related to sharecropping and, of course, the redlining and, of course, the numerous massacres where... Uh, Black folk who had managed to build communities for themselves, build homes for themselves, schools, uh, other businesses, uh, had that really taken away from them in a lot of these massacres that aren't even taught about in schools, where everything they had burned down to the ground. You talked about your family's animals poison. Uh, everything these black communities have, uh, we think of Roseville, we think of uh, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and numerous other examples of that. Um, I want to talk to Wilmington. Wilmington. Yeah. Wilmington, North Carolina is a major aspect of these, the struggle where masses of folks, government involved and organized military and police involved in, in uh, massacring black folk and destroying community. And, you know, it, it kind of uh, is a perfect segue into a lot of the activism that you did uh, in San Francisco as a student. You know, I think a lot of folk, uh, when we talk about um, civil rights, when we talk about Jim Crow, uh, there's a, a misunderstanding um, about California and the role that California played in a lot of this. There was a lot of racism, and there's still a lot of racism in California, a lot of segregation. But you were really one of the leaders uh, in your youth fighting uh, against... Uh, injustice, and, and here we have a picture of you in 1968 at San Francisco State. Uh, can you tell us what, what's going on in this picture and what you were fighting for here? 
Well, this is the San Francisco State strike. This is in the uh, the spring of '68. The major uh, strike uh, occurred in '68, '69. This is '67, '68. I left state in '68 uh, and became a bus driver in San Francisco, a mini driver, where or organized and organized a black caucus that played a major role in developing things, and we put together a movement to support developing a union there. But at this time, it's the fight for open admissions. It was one of the major issues that's not talked about there, but we wanted more black students recruited, ad- admitted to the to the, uh, to the San Francisco State. We wanted that change in California State itself. And we wanted black studies. We wanted ethnic studies. Uh, it's developed into various things across the country, but that's this is the first strike, the first effort at developing ethnic studies in this country, out of which all the various ethnic study uh, departments develop from, from um, our movement there for, for uh, black studies. And that was what we wanted, uh, an education that taught us about our history, taught us, uh, gave us an opportunity to have discussions among ourselves and students learning how to develop political and social uh, struggles, understanding, uh, and political analysis that helped us to advance in our lives and society to make changes. A struggle for change. Uh, that's what's the struggle for ethnic studies. And, you know, as I look at that picture and I hear um, uh, the struggles that you and, and those around you had fighting for ethnic studies and black studies, it reminds me of my days at Cornell University. So back in 1999, I feel like an old man for, for saying that, but uh, back in 1999, we were fighting to keep black studies at Cornell University. Uh, it was right around the time that you had uh, a lot of the anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti-affirmative action propositions. It was one in California in particular. Uh, And the administration at Cornell was considering getting rid of all ethnic studies programs. And I was uh, a double major majoring in Africana studies. And so we protested, the black people there, and this was in 1999, so about 30 years after you started the program that gave us the black studies in the first place. and we blocked traffic going into and out of the university. And I remember it was cold, it was in the middle of winter, and we laid our bodies out in the street. Um, no traffic could go in and out for about 10 hours. We were freezing because we wanted to send a message that you are not gonna take away our black studies. And the only reason we had it was because of you. You fought to give us the black studies in the first place and we were fighting to keep it. And it almost seems like we keep refighting many of the same battles over and over again. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Where it seems like we're on this, you know, this uh, this wheel where we keep fighting the same battles over again. It seems like we never really get beyond the same struggle. It does seem that way. A lot of times that we're on a treadmill, we keep going around and around the struggles. Um, we fought. Uh, for ethnic studies, we for, we called it black studies, but we we also talked about ethnic studies, bringing in uh, the studies of the history and and the contributions of of every ethnic group in in this country. Uh, understanding the world itself was a different outlook, and that that created a challenge to the system. Um, people, uh, various folks, did not want it as they don't want it today. They don't want this discussion. Uh, it's been attacked. By, by the academies, uh, universities, ever since it was established. Uh, the individuals who have been leadership uh, for, forces, uh, ac- academics in these areas have, are under attack. Um, historically, since 68, 
the constant, there's a constant struggle for this. People are being attacked because uh, many of the scholars are being called not scholarly. Uh, or, or women, particularly who are involved in these struggles, are being called too emotional. That's been the attack. So they're developing better language of how to attack folk. Right now, it's critical race theory that is developing uh, an understanding of what should be done in teaching and, and, and analyzing our history. And other folks are saying that anything that's related to discussing racism in our society is critical race theory and it should not be part of uh, any curriculum or part of any program and government in various parts of this country are attacking it. Uh, that was being done in those days. It's, it, it, it is a struggle for everything we've, we've gained and fought for. We're constantly fighting for fighting against it again. Uh, we fought and supported the movement to end slavery, and we ended up with a system of uh, wage oppression, um, and particularly in the, in the agricultural industry where people were pretty much enslaved uh, in, in much of the same same way as you talked about before, we have we're constantly making that fight. We make gains. We make we do have ethnic studies. We do have more students. Uh, we fought uh, at the at San Francisco State against the increase in in, in uh, cost. <laughs> I remember that we paid forty eight dollars for uh, a semester. I did. I didn't have it, uh, so I had to do all kinds of things to get it. And they wanted to raise it two dollars, and we made that part of our strike. Now it, it is it's, it's, it's astronomical, the cost of going. And what is that astronomical cost to black folk? What is it to, to working people? What is it to all the folks who have to do the hard work? Uh, they get up on and take the early bus families that Jesse Jackson talked about. What does that do for all these people who have to, who have to go to school? Um, the struggle for, uh, for uh, uh, free Free education is still a main main struggle, and we're making that fight. We were part of that struggle in the in the sixties. Um, so we faced the struggles around voting rights. We're facing that right now. We're facing the struggle, as I said before, around how to deal with education in our society when racist education has has been under attack by all of us in the movement. And yet, there are very powerful forces in government coming from the last administration, but not just that last administration. It's coming from both Democratic. And, and Republican administrations historically in this country, the pushback against black folk making advances. And as black folk make advance, that's always been part of the struggle for everybody making advance. For women, for other, every ethnic group and every economic group has made advances as a result of pushing hard. Uh, the descendants of slaves made that struggle and were the leading force in that struggle for a long time and set the examples for how it can be done. Um, you know, I have this discussion here uh, uh, about uh, what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and Paula Murray being the leading force. Uh, people should read her books and understand who Paula Murray is. It is particularly important for women to understand, black women to understand, the lawyers to understand that Paula Murray as a lawyer helped to build that moment because of her own experience, not from some, some, some philosophical, ideological approach towards it, but from her own experience, built an understanding of how to fight in the legal system to end racist oppression and racist discrimination for her and, and that impact on large numbers of people. The basis for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's what we've engaged in. You know, I'm, I'm going far afield, I suppose. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I see... The struggle we're talking about. Right. No, I see so many parallels in what you were fighting for and even my own life experience. So while you were at San Francisco State and you were dealing and the other students of color there and, you know, 
four white students dealing with a rising tuition and struggling and trying to find a way to stay at the university, I'm reminded of my time at Cornell University. And I remember I started with a meal plan where I got three meals a day. Uh, and the tuition was constantly rising. There were all these books that the professors wanted you to buy, many of them books that they had written. So you could boost their sales of whatever books they had. And I was struggling financially. And I remember I went from having three meals a day to two meals a day because I could not afford that meal plan anymore. And then I had to go down uh, to 10 meals a week. Um, and then I went down to five meals a week. And then I realized I could not afford the university meal plan at all because I needed that money to cover the tuition. And every year it would go up and every year the contribution of my parents went up. Uh, but I come from very humble beginnings. My father was a janitor at the post office. My mother cleaned houses. My mother cooked uh, meals at the local school. They did not have any money. So the only way that tuition was getting covered is I was working two jobs and I still never seemed to have enough money. So food was the one thing that I had to do without um, and so I think many people, uh, many young people are still having those same struggles. The tuition is rising. Uh, you have food insecurity. You have all of these different things. You touched on another point that I thought was, was powerful, and that's critical race theory. So right now, in 28 states, they have passed laws that prohibit uh, the discussion, uh, chilling the discussion of the contributions of black people and brown people and Asian people and Native American people and LGBTQ people. It has gone from just critical race theory, which, by the way, was never taught uh, in secondary school, to chilling any discussion about diversity, chilling any positive depictions of people of color, and also preventing us from having the real conversations about what racism, systematic racism, really looks like. Uh, they don't want our children to learn about you and the struggles that you had and the battles that you fought. They want our children to be miseducated. They want our children to be ignorant, but not just the children. They want the general population not to have any of this information. So we go from uh, not simply being denied resources and denied the opportunity to educate ourselves and better ourselves, the opportunity to own property, the opportunity to have that property appreciate, right? There's all these stories about appraisers uh, undervaluing property owned by black people and black people having to hide our blackness and pretend that we're white in order to get a fair uh, price for property that we're trying to sell or property that we're trying to refinance. Not only is all of that happening, but they don't even want us to learn our history. Uh, so if you have a message for people who are listening to this, what is it and why is it so important that we know our history, know where we come from, know about your contributions and everybody who has been part of, uh, of this struggle? Well, there's a history of struggle that people have to become aware of and understand what that is. Uh, education is key to moving forward. It's key to, uh, to understanding how we are going to, to, to make advances in this society. And developing some, some critical uh, analysis of what has happened in the past. Um, once you know facts, then you have to figure out what those facts mean and the impact of those facts. Developing the ability to work with other folks to, to see the need to be part of, uh, of um, community efforts, to, to be part of group efforts, not being individuals um, standing out. 
Individual work is important. Individual courage is important. But my message is that we have to constantly struggle and understand that the society we live in wasn't built around the ideas that we think uh, are so important to us. And if we want to realize those ideas, that idealism, uh, that, that, that's, that's uh, the conundrum that, that we face is how to realize those, those, the idealism that we think that, uh, that we're built upon and develop a better society for ourselves. Uh, I talk occasionally at some various places. I spoke at William and Mary um, about um, where we go from here. And one of the things I talked about in, in, at William and Mary, of course, is a college uh, law school that was developed, named after the King of England, uh, the Queen of England, and, and her husband, the King, William and Mary. Uh, law schools developed by uh, Thomas Jefferson across the country. Uh, uh, we don't know what they are, but they were built on with slaves, built by slaves and built upon slaves. And students, law students went to those schools with their slave servants. And not, not everybody could go to law school. We know that. You and I could not have been lawyers in that system. Most of the people on this call could not have been lawyers in that system. We couldn't get into law schools. Uh, those changes have been made. And we have to understand that that system was built upon white supremacy. Now, we can say that there were good aspects to what folks want to do, but we are living in a system that was built upon the, the primacy of white men around white man's culture and white man's economics. Uh, the church before that had divided the world up for, for uh, white folks, European white aristocracy, and um, that was uh, to dominate because that was the dominant paradigm that we had to live with. And we understand that. We have to understand that about our country, about our history. And understanding that helps us to build a, a, a more democratic society, a society that's more inclusive. We can't get there until we reach that. And that's what's difficult for the dominant culture in the society, the dominant political culture in the society to accept. And it's difficult for a lot of folks because of our own educations. We find it difficult to say this is a white supremacist-based government. The Constitution was based upon the power and, and privilege of white men. It didn't include anybody else. It said what other people were regulated, regulated to, but it did not include other folks being in that power structure. And that included women. It included all the ethnic groups that we were in, the national groups. And it certainly included black folk who were slaves, the prominent aspect of that. We have been able to make some changes because we constantly fight. And we know that if we constantly fight and understand what we go through and, and, and how we can make a society based upon our own experience, things can get better. Things will change. And I think that's the message that, that's important to get now. There's a powerful image that I would like to share. Um, and it's right here. And this is a picture of you as a young man desegregating a movie theater I think it's powerful because it's real, right? This is not just some theory. This is not something that just happened in a book. This is you right here in this picture. Can you tell us what you were thinking, what you were feeling, um, and how you had the courage uh, to fight uh, systematic racism right here in this photograph? Mm. When I look at that photograph, I see myself and I understand what my emotions were. I'm looking at the owner of the, the manager of the theater. That theater was Carolina Theater. It was owned by the city of Durham. So it was, in that sense, public. 
uh, there were other theaters that we were part of in desegregating at that time. And there's a cop there with his hand on his gun. I'm a high school student. And I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate this situation with, uh, with, with uh, my friend who was there. And we're at the ticket box. And we're going in. Oddly enough, the movie that was playing was Sergeant's Three. And if you know Sergeant's Three, it had uh, Sammy Davis Jr. in it, part of the Rat Pack movie. And um, we were going to go not to the Crow's Nest, because there was a Crow's Nest upstairs that was segregated theater. Black folk had to go climb the outside stairs uh, like a fire escape to uh, the upstairs, and we were in um, in the crow's nest upstairs where only uh, black people were allowed to, uh, only a place we could go watch a movie. And we thought that was an affront to our dignity. And as young people, we were not going to accept that. And we were paying lots of money. Every every week, people were going to see movies. And the movie theater was making, uh, making you know, tremendous amounts. So we were saying, we want jobs at this theater, and we want to end the uh, se- se- segregation. We want the dignity of being able to sit in the uh, orchestra downstairs and walk in the front door into this movie theater. And they were violently opposed to that. I mean, people got hurt uh, in the movement trying to do that. And as a young man, what bothers me so much is that I, I had to um, figure out in negotiating that how I could not confront those folks in a way that scared them and get shot at the same time we were not going to move away from our demand and and we didn't stop the the, the picket line we didn't stop the uh, round robins that we had going through the theater uh, and we eventually were able to desegregate that theater uh, with a tremendous mass movement and in, in other theaters in, in north carolina um but that was Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what happened to you after this picture was taken? Were you taken into custody? Did they just give you a warning? What happened to you here? We had thousands of people outside. So I I walked out of the theater. No, they didn't want to arrest um, us at that time uh, because it was, we had already filled up the jails and many, many, many times with demonstrations. So we had thousands of people outside and um, they were just going to deny us. If we were to force our way in, it would it would have probably been more violent. I remember at one time I did get through the line. We had uh, students from Duke, was an all white university at that time. Duke didn't integrate until much later. Um, and um, we were able to get by, get somebody by tickets for us, and we walked in very quickly and rushed in. And I'm sitting there in the dark with other, with you know a couple of people and saying, "What the hell am I doing? I'm here in the dark in a theater where I'm surrounded by folks who won't don't want me here, and uh, um, you know anything could happen." But at this time, um, we were able to walk out of the theater and continue our demonstration. This was going inside trying to buy tickets and uh, sitting talking to the manager. And saying that this theater is publicly owned and you need to let us in. And we ended up with lawsuits and so forth, but we finally integrated. This police officer was a mean rascal. One other thing I wanted to point out is the body language. And I know you just said you wanted to appear non threatening to the officer. And I see your hands are visible and you're holding your hands. Um, and, and that fear that you had is because you didn't want to give them any excuse to uh, attack you or kill you. Is that a fair? Right. Yeah. 
what's interesting is that we're dealing with the, the same thing right now. And, and I've talked at other programs about my uh, interactions with law enforcement. I've had cops pull guns on me. I've had cops uh, point guns directly at my head. Uh, even as an attorney and a partner at a law firm and a leader in the Bar Association, uh, I have been stopped um, while driving my car and asked why am I, you know, how could I afford the car that I'm in? And I'm always thinking in those interactions. And I think every black man in America is thinking when they're stopped by the cops is how do I get out of this situation without ending up dead, right? Because we know that because of the color of our skin, the way that we look, uh, that there are some folks who will find us threatening just because of the color of our skin. And we know that in most instances, if we are killed, murdered by the police, uh, nothing will happen. We've had the uh, George Floyd um, case with uh, Derek Chauvin convicted, but that's one in a million, right? In the majority of cases, uh, you kill a black man, you kill somebody who looks like me, nothing is going to happen to you. And I won't be there to give my side of the story anyway. Do you have any advice for black men who may be watching this video or other men of color who are trying to figure out how to conduct themselves when they interact with law enforcement in a way where they don't end up dead? Uh, what advice do you have? What should you do when you're stopped by the police and you're trying to figure out how to navigate that situation and come out alive. What should we do? I, uh, I, I think I have evolved to some extent from that experience as a high school student fighting in North Carolina and other places. I think uh, for me, it's important to maintain uh, my dignity. Um, I don't think I would say we should go at somebody swinging. I think that we have to not have the uh, approach of Confront, confronting in uh, uh, a way that allows the uh, police officer or or the authority to become violent against us so that they don't have that excuse. But I think we have to stand strong and firm. Uh, I am I am uh, no longer uh, willing to uh, to say that we have to have some of the approaches that we we are told to have is that be non-threatening. Um, I don't know what non-threatening is today because non-threatening in some ways is threatening to my own personal well-being, my identity, myself, and my family. Uh, I, um, I, there's one photograph of me being arrested in, in, uh, in Oakland in 2010. And that arrest was at a demonstration uh, um, where uh, we were protesting uh, 2010, obviously, uh, it was Oscar Grant and and uh, um, Bluford uh, and um, Alan Bluford. Uh, I represented his mother at various times, and I uh, worked with uh, Wanda Johnson, who is um, who is um, uh, um, the mother of. of uh, and and I, I I think that one of the things that that uh, it's important to say is that we need to fight more. Um, um, I got arrested and going into my office, my office that was at 1440 Broadway, right between 14th and 15th on Broadway. Is this and, the photo uh, that you were referencing? This is the photo. This is the photo that I was referencing. 
And as I was going into my office door, there were people massing, and I had been involved in being on the line, demonstrating and talking to folks during that day uh, and that night. Uh, I'd been on the streets at night uh, in mo many of the demonstrations that have occurred. Um, uh, I can tell you a story about um, you know uh, various times standing out there between cops and demonstrators where cops had shotguns and ready. Um, but um, in this case, what's uh, so outrageous about this is that when I got arrested opening my office door, uh, the uh, cop was going after my son, and I wanted him inside. My son is bigger than I am, <laughs> black man. And um, I knew that if he got arrested out there, uh, he, he would probably be hurt. Uh, and I also had to keep uh, from acting in such a way that they, that my son came and, and defended me. But what happened is a cop, CHP, walked up to me, put his hands around my throat. Not a cauterate uh, hole, but a illegal hole, his hands around my throat and choked me. And then handed me off to another officer who handed me off to another officer. Uh, so that I could not be identified as being arrested by uh, the officer who choked me or the subsequent officer who could say he saw what happened and who handed me off. So I could never find out who the officer was that choked me. And Oakland Police Department participated in that and took me into jail. And um, even though I had been choked, and I told him I had been choked, uh, got to the uh, police department after sitting in a car in the paddy wagon for hours and hours, the uh, uh, doctor on on uh, at the at the police station, which is necessary for them when they're arrested, particularly crowds of folks. If someone's been hurt, is supposed to but uh, it's supposed to uh, examine them. But he refused to examine me. I had sores, and 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 I should have been examined, but he refused to. This is that was a, <laughs> the doctor was a black man. Uh, refuse and people to refuse to uh, take on the system because they cannot. Uh, understand why people or accept that people are protesting and they need to support that you can do your job and you can do it well and you could have done it right by just participating and saying you can't put this guy in jail you can't put him in a cell right now and uh, they put us in a cell that night that was so full that we couldn't nobody could sit down or lay down and that was true for all the sale and people allowed that. And the black police officers and some of those folks who are now playing a leadership role in the police department were there and saw it happen uh, and allowed it to happen and didn't protest against it and didn't say it shouldn't happen. Um, we live in a system where too much cooperation with the racism, oppression that occurs, racist conduct that occurs is, is part of and parcel of folks figuring out how to get along. Um, um, these are things that bring up these, 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 these both emotional, I think, and, and, and objective kind of analysis about what's going on for me um, uh, as I talk about our experiences. But this is, this is the world we live in, and the fight has to be one where we recognize uh, that we need to figure out how to agree that there is something wrong. And something wrong in the system is not just some, some, some intellectual uh, uh, discourse it is in fact there are practical ways that we can approach it in our everyday life and every one of us whatever war we play as lawyers in our society in our community but in our official work we can we can do something about it and and we just need to say something we also need to act on on what we understand is happening and say we can't allow this those are the people who have courage 
to fight the people who have the courage to make the change. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to see your young folk doing it. And I want to encourage you to continue in that direction because it's always difficult in your job and people who are in jobs like you, black and, and, and non-black folks, are encouraged to figure out how to get along with all the folks around them. Uh, you know, we see those things being challenged on television and stories. But in your actual work, you have to figure out how you get along and be respected by the folks and have them think of you as somebody who is useful and understand your value and importance while you at the same time say, you know, there's some shit that's going on that I can't accept.